I think you would agree with me that the disposition or posture or stands or attitude that we bring to God's Word is incredibly important, isn't it? And that issue is incredibly relevant for you and for me right now because we're coming to God's Word together, right? (laughs) This is extremely relevant right here, real time. We are coming to God's Word. So, think about your current disposition. Think about your current disposition to the Word. Maybe as I say that right now, you know that you're distracted. You know your mind's somewhere else. Maybe right now, this is just going to be another sermon. It's just something you check off on a box on Sunday morning. Maybe you've read this and you looked over the chapter and you thought, well, I kind of know this chapter. I've read it before. Maybe your mind is so filled with other things that even though you want to be to bring a right posture or disposition or attitude towards the word, maybe something else is just right. Got the Kung Fu death grip on your on your mind and your heart will not let go. It's just consuming your thoughts right now. Think about your current disposition. Consider your internal posture this morning. Check your stance. Be honest about your attitude as you come before God's Word. And after you've done that, then look with me, if you haven't already, at one of our selections. Turn over to Isaiah 66. It's one of our selections from our Bible reading plan this past week. Isaiah chapter 66. Listen to the opening verses, the opening verses of Isaiah 66, the opening verses of the closing chapter of the book of Isaiah. Verses 1 and 2, thus says Yahweh, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares Yahweh. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, think with me about that last phrase. He who trembles at my word. Trembling. When is the last time you trembled at something? When is the last time you trembled at, like at anything? At first glance, this phrase doesn't sound all that positive, does it? <laughs> It sounds like someone who's about to learn the mode or method by which they'll be tortured, right? <laughs> and so they're they're trembling. I mean, wouldn't you tremble if that was the, the, the word that you were about to hear? <laughs> trembling is something we typically connect with dread or terror, right? You're like, he was shaking like a leaf, right? That, that's kind of the phrase and the Im- imagery. And, and God's word absolutely uses it that way in certain contexts. That idea is not foreign to God's word. As Gideon announced, take a look on the screen here. 
we'll put this verse up. As Gideon announced just before a major battle in Judges chapter 7, this is verse 3, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Whoever is fearful and trembling, whoever is filled with terror and dread in light of the upcoming battle, you're free to leave. Remember where God was paring down Gideon's forces into a smaller force that he would have the glory through his strength and power would be made clear through their weakness. But is this fear and dread, terror and dread, is this the only way to understand the language of trembling and specifically trembling at God's word as Isaiah 66 2 tells us? Is that the only way to think about it? No, I don't think it is. Let's, let's think more about that by digging into this passage together. Since we're focusing on that final phrase of our passage, we're, we're kind of working, we're starting from the end and working backwards. Let's do that. Let's work backwards. For example, notice that the man or woman who trembles at God's word is not introduced at the end of verse 2 as anxious and terrified, but as what? Humble and contrite in spirit. Do you see that? That's how the person is introduced. Not as anxious and terrified, but as humble and contrite in spirit. Now, if we were to go into the Hebrew, the original language in which Isaiah was written, throughout Isaiah, we find this word translated humble here. It's like 12 other instances in the book. But it's never, ever translated humble in any of those other passages. It's always translated as either poor needy or afflicted poor needy or afflicted similarly the word translated contrite here remember we're describing the person who trembles at god's word that word contrite is kind of a rare word it's only found in one other book in scripture second samuel and in that book second samuel it refers to a man named mephibosheth you know, biblical names are always popular in naming babies, but there's like this like there's like this handful of names, right, that just don't get any love. Tabitha got some love, but her actual name Dorcas just <laughs> it doesn't get any love. Mahershalhal Hashbaz doesn't get any love, although I, I actually have seen people name that. Mahershalhal Hashbaz, the longest name in the Bible. Well, Mephibosheth is in that category, isn't it? Why are we talking about Mephibosheth? Because that word only appears here. And, and in that context, it means in Hebrew, crippled. Do you remember he was lame in his feet? He was crippled. And David had mercy on him and let him sit and eat at his table that he might show loving kindness to Jonathan's household. Mephibosheth was crippled. This is talking about lameness of spirit, isn't it? We read here about lameness of spirit. Now, stop and think about the picture that emerges here when you see these two words together, when we get dig into the Hebrew. The man or woman who is needy and crippled in spirit, that man or woman is the man or woman who trembles at God's word. Needy and crippled in spirit. How do we make sense of that imagery? What exactly is it saying here about this person? Well, I think we make sense of that imagery in light of the context by jumping back to the opening line. 
I know I'm th- you're going to get whiplash from going from the end of our text back up to verse chapter one, ver- sorry, sorry, chapter 66, verse 1, right at the very beginning. Jump back to that opening line of the chapter and think about how God introduces himself here. What does he say? Thus says Yahweh, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Whoa. Now, just take the figurative language there literally for a moment. We know that the Bible says God is spirit, so God doesn't have feet. Do we all know that? I hope so. All right. When it talks about God's feet or hands or whatever, that's him kind of stooping down to us to help us understand something. Hand usually means power, for example. It represents something. God does not have feet, but if we take the imagery literally, right? Uh, we know, of course, he doesn't have feet. We know his feet are not resting on top of the planet Earth. I can't go to like the, the plains of the Sahara and see God's little toe there, for example. It doesn't work that way. But if we take the imagery literally, wouldn't you be in awe at the sheer size of God? Unbelievable. It would be astounding. Then if that's true, how much more in awe of God should we be when we accept that God is way bigger and so much greater than even that imagery can convey? Heaven is my throne... And the earth is my footstool. Of course, the language here is not ultimately about God's size. It's about his reign, his sovereignty, about his rule over all things. Things in heaven, his throne, and things on the earth, his footstool. Do you see that? And as we've talked about in weeks past, that is a beautiful, powerful, almost perfect summary of everything that we've seen in Isaiah's chapter four, Isaiah 40 through 66. God emphasizing his greatness and his rule over all history. Why? In order to reassure his people that he has a purpose and a plan for them that he is carrying out And no force in the world can stop him. In fact, they will be used to serve his purpose. That is the picture emerging from Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. God's great power, his sovereignty, his power as king over all things. And so when any man or any woman, any boy or any girl rightly understands themselves in light of this God, they recognize the fact that they are needy as creatures and they are crippled as sinners. If you truly see God through eyes of faith, clearly you are going to walk away with a sense of your creatureliness that you are needy that you depend on Him. Not only did He make you, but He sustains you. And you have the sense that you will have the clear sense that you are crippled as a sinner before Him. Do you see how the context ties these things together? How God presents Himself? The result of that recognition, what would the result of that kind of recognition be? A man or a woman, a boy or a girl who is humble and contrite in spirit. That will be the result. 
humble and contrite in spirit. And a man or woman, a boy or girl, as verse 2 ends with, who trembles at God's word, at the king's word. Maybe not physically trembles, but absolutely trembles inside. Internally trembles. In light of all this, let me suggest this idea, this statement in reference to that final phrase from Isaiah 66 too. Just because the word tremble, we need to define it a little bit more, right? We need to kind of really, what does it really mean? Because if in fact we were to live in light of the will of, will of God in the word of God in a very literal way, uh, all y'all would be work, walking in here every Sunday going like, I'm tr- hi, pastor, how are you doing? I'm trembling because the word of God is about to be preached. Well, we don't. We know that's not what it means. So let's push beyond that imagery of tremble. And what does it actually mean? Take a look on the screen here. Take a look on the screen. This is what it says. To tremble at God's word is what? It's to take his word as seriously and as personally as possible since it is the word of the creator and your creator. It means to take his word as seriously and as personally as possible since it is the word of the creator of all things. All these things came to be, as he stressed, because of me. I am the creator of all things, all that you see, seen and unseen. But I am also your creator. I created you, God says, to you. David isn't the only one who can claim those words. They're his words, but we can claim them. He says it to you if you listen to him now. I formed you in your mother's womb. I knit you together in the unseen place. Isn't that amazing? He is your creator, not simply the creator. To tremble at God's word is to take his word as seriously and as personally as possible, since it is the word of the creator and your creator. Now, there's also a contrast here in these two verses that's important. I think it's helpful for us to think about it. Did you notice the kind of people Yahweh first addresses here? He's not first talking to the humble and contrite in spirit and those who tremble at his word. Who is he first speaking to? Look back at verse 1. He says, what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Now, if we think about the context, we've talked about the context a number of times over the past couple of weeks as we've been look, looking at these, uh, these, cl- this closing half of Isaiah. As we think about that context and the prophet's intended audience, it seems clear that when God says what he says there in verse 1, he's addressing those Jews who had returned from their exile. They had returned back to the land of promise, the one promised to their ancestors, to their, to the, to the, their forefathers. They were returning and they wanted to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But the context makes it clear that they wanted to rebuild that temple for all the wrong reasons. At least some of them did. 
like their predecessors, like their close ancestors, the ones who were addressed at the very beginning of the book. So this is actually a reference in 66 back to chapter 1. Because what did we see in chapter 1? This is what we saw. Like those ancestors, these people that God is addressing here believed that God would look to them. Right? Earlier in chapter 63 and, and maybe... I don't, I don't have the references here, but you can find it. They are crying out to God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Would you look to us? Look upon our suffering, God. Look upon us in this way. They believe that God would look to them, that they could satisfy God, that they could even maybe control God by simply returning to their rituals. If we can just get this temple built, Right? We will be going all cylinders, right? Let's just get this temple going. Let's get the sacrifices going again. And everything will come together the way it's supposed to. They weren't concerned about honoring God. Their lives testified to that. They literally wanted God in a box. And figuratively, we could say they wanted God in their box. Wasn't that what we saw in chapter 1? People going through the formalities of ritual. People living according to the routine of religion. Thinking that they could somehow control God. That was what God, that's all God wanted. They could placate God in that way. But their lives told a very different story about who had their hearts. So they want to put God in the box so that he would serve them rather than the other way around. If you look at verses 3 and 4, this is why God is so severe with them in verses 3 and 4. Right? You bring a sacrifice to me, it's like you killed somebody. That's how seriously I was taking it. You killing an animal in this case with your heart is like murder. That's how, it, that's how he wanted to expose the hypocrisy of their heart the idolatry of their heart, the pride. These people did not tremble at God's word. They trampled on it. They didn't tremble. They trampled on it. They were proud and they were confident and they sought to exploit His word, picking and choosing what they wanted for their own ends. Good thing that doesn't happen anymore today. The pastor said sarcastically, Right? We, have, we have very gross examples of that out in our culture if we look around carefully. And we even see in our own hearts that we can be tempted to that very thing, to pick and choose what we want from God's Word. To ignore things, to play down some things, and play up other things. But listen again to what God declares here in verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one to whom I will look. Not he who builds me a temple, but he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Okay, as we think about application of this, right? How, how the ancient word should impact our life today, your life today. Let's unpack this just a little bit more. So imagine this. Imagine this. Imagine three different scenarios linked by the Word. Three different scenarios linked by the Word. 
but specifically it's a word about cancer. The, the topic, the word is about cancer. So first, think about a magazine article describing a famous individual's battle with cancer. Third, uh, second, if you were, let's say you're taking a college course, think about writing and proofreading a paper about cancer. So first, article. There's the word about cancer. Second, a, a paper. There's a word about cancer. Then think about a voicemail from an oncologist and imagine a voicemail in which that oncologist, that cancer doctor, asked you to call him back right away. In all three of those examples, you are hearing, you are receiving, you, will, you are or will be interacting with a word about cancer. But in only one of those scenarios would you tremble at the word. Does that make sense? The first example, the article connects you to cancer, but it does so by way of curiosity. In the second example, the stakes are a little bit higher since you're going to be graded on this paper that you're going to turn in. But only in that last example, if it plays out the way we would be afraid that it would play out when we return that call, only in that last example do the serious and the personal meet in such a way that you would tremble at the doctor's word. Does that make sense? Serious and personal. Of course, this idea of trembling would apply in other less scary circumstances as well. Like we were saying at the beginning, is this just, just about dread or terror? Because as, as believers, we don't walk in dread or terror in light of, of Jesus Christ. We don't walk in dread or, dread or terror in light of the finished work on the cross, amen? We don't walk in that fear, that kind of fear. We don't walk in fear of eternal punishment. We do not. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Are we only talking about dread or fear? Now, let me give you an example of a different circumstance. Think about this. Think about your posture toward a news story that maybe you watch on the evening news or you hear about on social media. And it's about the Arizona lottery giving away a million dollars to three different households, three different lucky households, and all they're going to do is randomly make phone calls, right? A computer is going to generate numbers and they're going to pick up the phone and they're going to call three households across the state and say, guess what? You won a million dollars. Think about your posture towards that news story. But if an hour later your phone rang and the caller ID said, Arizona State Lottery, your disposition, your posture would be radically different in terms of a word from the lottery. you would, in a sense, tremble in light of that overwhelming reality. Oh, Hello? <laughs> right? That would be you. So what about a word from God Himself? What about a word from God Himself, maker of heaven and earth? 
If you are, let me tell you this, you've maybe never thought about it this way, but if you are a genuine disciple of Jesus, if you are a born again believer this morning, if you are a spirit filled Christian and there is no real Christian who is not spirit filled, then you have trembled at God's word. If you are that, then you have trembled. No one can experience new birth and be a true follower of Christ without trembling at God's word, even if not literally trembling. Specifically, we're talking about trembling at the gospel. If it is not received in faith as both serious and personal, then it is not received. It just isn't. So you cannot be a believer unless you've already trembled at the gospel, the word of God. But as I think we all know, that saving tremble doesn't mean genuine disciples will not struggle in regularly maintaining that same posture towards God's word. I think you know that from your everyday experience that we struggle in those ways, don't we? God would ask you through his word this morning a simple question. Do you tremble at my word? Do you tremble at my word? And if not, why not? Like reading an article on cancer or writing a paper on cancer, Sometimes our posture with Scripture itself is far less invested, right? It's far more detached than it should be, than a conversation with the great physician should be, hearing his word. Serious and personal at times just seem far away. Or to put it another way, other things in our lives can seem far more serious and God's Word can seem far less personal than they should. It's okay to admit that. We need to admit that. We need to acknowledge that. Again, looking into the mirror of God's Word here this morning. Like the first readers of Hebrews we too can become, Hebrews 5.11, dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. That's why the writer wrote to his audience in Hebrews. Now, if you can relate to that struggle, and you can say, God, it's true. When I think about your word, I don't think about trembling before your word. My time with the word sometimes is just transactional. It's just there or i don't even have the time with the word i kind of play this mind game with myself where i say well i know that and i'll hear it on sunday and you know and then when we're here sometimes our mind somewhere else we know this we know our struggles in these ways this is why god gives us his word and If you're struggling in that way, then think about this. I I invite you to use this prayer. Make it this your own. This is adapted uh, from 1 Thessalonians 2.13. You'll see it here on the screen. Here's the prayer. Father, when I receive the word of God, your word, help me always to accept it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God 
which is at work in those who believe. That's a good prayer, isn't it? We just talked about Elder Christian talked to us about reading scripture, uh, praying scripture, using scripture to be the content of our prayer. Well, here's an adaptation that I know is helpful to me at times is to really, before you sit down with the word, before you pull it up on your phone, pray that kind of prayer. Help me always to accept it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And you see there, the fact that the Thessalonians trembled at God's word was abundantly evident from how that word was at work in them and through them. Just read the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians and you will see they became imitators of the apostles in all of their afflictions, so much so that Paul says the word of God has sounded forth from you, from you, your church, across all Macedonia and Achaia, that's southern Greece where Athens is, down south Corinth, all those. They all knew about the Thessalonians. So the evidence of their disposition or posture towards the word was clear from the way that they lived, from the way that they endured suffering, from the way they obeyed. They followed God's word. Paul writes to them, excel still more in a life that's pleasing to God. Keep going. You're doing so well. Keep going. You know what? And we can pray this kind of prayer with this spirit of prayer. We can pray this kind of prayer with hope in our hearts. Why is that? Because God's grace really does open the ears of our hearts. You wouldn't tremble at the gospel if God's grace had not opened the eyes and the ears of your heart. And He loves to continue to do that. Our God loves to do that. Jesus gave thanks for this very reality in Matthew 11. Take a look at 11, 25 and 26. Matthew eleven twenty five and 26. Jesus prayed, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, spiritually, figuratively, the humble, the lowly in the society. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Please hear this. By His grace, God loves to give us a heart that trembles at His word. You believe that? If you want that heart, then just ask Him for that heart. Seek that heart from Him because He graciously gave it to you once before. He wants to sustain you in that heart by His power. But we are called, right? We are called as well by Scripture to cooperate with grace. In faith. We are called to cooperate with grace in faith with gratitude in our hearts. It's all over the New Testament. Sometimes grace tempts us to be inactive because we think, well, Jesus did it all, right? Jesus did it all. We sing that, but then we do nothing. uh, Yeah, we've got the squared away part that it's not my merit, but that is not the New Testament, brothers and sisters. Peter talks about the promises of God in 2 Peter chapter 1. His great and precious promises by which He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's like, 
boom, blowing your mind with how much God wants to give you and empower you. He's done it all. He's made it all possible for you. And what are his next words? Make every effort, therefore. Oh, Peter, you're getting real legalistic here. Peter, you're getting, oh, works, works orientation. Whoa, wait a minute. You see, it's a misunderstanding both directions when it comes to grace and works. We can err on both sides of that equation. And so what what does the New Testament teach? It teaches us to cooperate with grace. God calls us in faith to cooperate with God's grace and know in the end that if we accomplish anything, it's all by His strength and power in us. That's how Paul thought. I labored tirelessly, even more than all of them, but not me, but the power of God in me, right? I labor, I toil by the grace and power that He so richly puts in me, right? He just continually would bounce back and forth to that because what was he doing? Modeling for his readers. That a life saved by grace was not one that was inactive in some way. It was the most active. It was radically activated because of that enabling grace. This is the same dynamic when we think about trembling that we see here. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2. This is what Paul writes. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and what? Trembling. With fear and trembling. Is that dread or terror? No. It's the recognition of our neediness as creatures and our lameness as sinners, our crippledness as sinners, right? It's that recognition that causes us to tremble before God because He is God. We are not. We are in awe of Him whose throne is heaven. The earth is His footstool. He is King over all things. That's exactly where Paul goes here. Work out your salvation, the salvation that Christ died to work into you. Work it out. Work it out with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God, the God of Isaiah, the God who sits on the throne above, the God who rules rules over all the earth, who works in you, in you personally, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Pleasure. The God who prophesied to Isaiah, the God who moved nations at his behest, the God who accomplishes his purposes for his people throughout history is at work in your little life today. If you're a believer. Is that awesome? But it should cause you to tremble. Right? To take it as seriously and personally as possible. Wow, that's huge. That's amazing. And it's speaking to me. You're speaking to me, God, through this. So as you hear the word this morning, as you come to the word this week, brother, sister, come trembling in light of what we've talked about. What does that mean? It means taking his word as seriously and as personally as possible since it is the word of the creator and your creator. The same creator who became a creature 
like us in order to die a horrible death for our pride, for our trampling on the word, for our twisting of the word and picking, picking and choosing what we want out of it. He died for that sinful path that we were on. In Jesus Christ, the only man to be perfect in that reverence and awe department, <laughs> Jesus is the only one who ever demonstrated as a human being perfect reverence and awe towards God. Because of that man, because of Jesus, we can rest assured each and every day that God is always looking to us. This is the one to whom I look, says the God of Isaiah. That God is your God. And because of Jesus, He always looks to you. His eye is never not on you. He sees your hurt. He sees your struggles. He sees your good days and your bad days. He sees it all. His eye is on you. Isn't that wonderful to contemplate? Just stop for a minute. Here's the Word of God this morning. Your God became a man and died for you. If we take that as seriously and as personally as is possible, how can that not cause us to tremble? Your God became a man and died for you. We should tremble, shouldn't we? Let's pray even now in light of this. Let's go to God in prayer. And this week, let's go to Him praying for His grace, praying for our cooperation in faith, praying for trembling, that trembling spirit, that humble and contrite spirit. Every time we come to His precious Word, may He do that. And remember, we can ask Him that in hope because He's a God that loves to give that. He's a God who graciously opens the ears of our heart. So let's ask Him to do that very thing this morning.